Whoever was the first to say, "'Tis better to give than to receive," obviously never was up for an Oscar. Now they're wonderful. They all have their Oscars. But are they happy? Hello! There we go. And welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I'm your host, Danny Vincent, and I am worried about nuclear destruction. Don't be worried. Well, maybe be a little worried. Be worried about climate change. Um, that's not a joke. I'm Sarah, by the way. And I just saw a great birthday party for a tiger at the local zoo. I'm Caleb Bunn. Oh, I thought you were serious. I forgot that was part of the movie. <laughs> there are zoo there are tigers at the local zoo here. They're really cool. Now, before we talk about this week's movie, we must discuss the 96th Academy Award Oscar nominations. Can you hear the music? Can you hear the music? There we go. That was the joke I was trying to make earlier, trying to make connection between this week's episode and Oppenheimer, but I, I couldn't think of it in time. Uh, Is that a line in Oppenheimer? Yes. It's the line okay. that has gone viral on TikTok with everything about that. I'm so surprised that you're on TikTok, Caleb, and you haven't seen that because I'm not even on TikTok and people constantly show me that like TikTok of Kenneth Brown. I'm going, can you hear the music? Can you? And it's like the montage at the beginning of the movie. I'm on like woodworking and Lego TikTok. I avoid film talk like a plague. Well, the, as as you might have suspected by my very poor Oppenheimer reference that no one here got, um, the Oscar nominations came out. Um, recording right after they were announced, and you know what? We are here to talk about what we think will be nominated for the Snub Club. But first, before we want, is there any thoughts about the general nominations by any of you guys? Yeah, I think Barbie didn't get enough nominations. What's <laughs> what? with that? <laughs> what? Why do you guys hate I'm Barbie? I'm just kidding. I, I'm I just kidding. Okay. I am tired of the Barbie discourse already. I'm tired of hearing about who deserved to be nominated and who didn't, especially when there's actual snubs. I find it very representative of the movie as a whole, in my opinion, that the conversation is around two white women getting nominated. First of all, there's literally a woman direct, uh, there's a woman who's nominated for a director who right now is representing a country that's going through like a major, like France is having their Me Too right now. And, and remember, nobody's talking about that. She outright was not submitted, her film was outright not submitted by France because. They were like, we don't like that she hates Macron. I butchered his name, I know. But I just, I'm so tired of the Barbie discourse right now because it feels so, I have a lot of thoughts about it. I just feel like people are so focused on, and I don't even think like America Ferrer deserved a nomination, but I think it's funny that people are like, I can't believe that, that the women are being, are being put down on this project. And it's like, excuse me like a woman was nominated for acting um i'm just tired of it i'm tired of this i'm just tired of it i feel like as someone who liked barbie more than everyone here and 
would have liked to see Margo over a couple of these noms. I think the fact that she has an Oscar nom for producing, Greta Gerwig got in for screenplay, means that I cannot be too upset about that. To me, it's just like Amy Adams not getting nominated for Enchanted. Uh, it's the same thing to me. Because that is their equal levels of good performances. Sarah's giving me a look, but Sarah hasn't even seen Barbie. So I mean, she- <laughs> I feel like if you're going to use Amy Adams as an example, I would oh, yeah, well, yeah, it. Well, no, no. That would have been like if Jeremy Renner got nominated for that film. That would have been like the comparative point. Um, Sarah's, of course, re- referring to the time Amy Adams should have won in 2016 yes. for Arrival and did not even get Wasn't nominated. even nominated. Yeah. I also mm-hmm. just feel like I'm just seeing all these like very I don't want to say like normie, but that's exactly what it is. Like these very like normie takes that are like, oh, I guess Barbie directed itself. And it's like, OK, well, I guess Past Lives was just a screenplay. Like what's like what is going on here? I just I feel like I'm living in a parallel universe where like everybody feels like they're on this feminist crusade for Barbie for a movie that was nominated for like nine awards. Where is if we were going to talk about movies that were snubbed, directed by women? I'm going to say right now, and I look at the supporting actress category. I see literally only one actual option to vote for. As someone who, well, I haven't seen Nyad. I don't think Nyad's a real movie. I don't think anyone has seen Nyad. But these other ones I've seen, and I'm like, Divine Joy Randolph is the only option. You know, it was a great film directed by a woman that I knew was going to be completely ignored by the Oscars. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. This is a white woman nomination. I will stand for that. <laughs> Rachel McAdams should be here over Emily Blunt. <laughs> is that... Just saying. She was fantastic in that film. Um, I don't know. I do think the Barbie discourse has kind of drowned out everything else recently. As in recently, I mean post-nom. I would like to say what I said on my other podcast that's going to release after this. Let's say I appreciate the Academy once again loudly proclaiming that animation isn't cinema. I appreciate that happening every year. Makes me very happy every time they do that. I'm not being sarcastic. I I fully support this continuing to happen until this annoying movement ends. I'm tired of your buzz phrases, internet. Um But anyway, Caleb, did you have any thoughts on did you even look at the nominations? It's okay if you didn't. I know you normally I, don't. I watched I watched them. Um, no, I, you know, it's, I think it's like the most boring picks possible. I haven't seen half the movies, so it's not judge on quality. It's just like, what movies do you expect to get nominated? They all got nominated. Uh, obviously there were some stubs, but I can call it some cool stuff. I think Justin, Justine Triet, I know I can't get her name right. I think that's a cool nom for director. Yeah. Think- and especially because, uh, anatomy wasn't put up as France's pick, and I'm I'm a big fan of Anatomy. I think it's one of the better films to get nominations. I don't know. I just like I look at it and I'm like, there is a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the world of film this year, and I don't think a lot of it got any focus. Well, I wish Past Lives had gotten more nominations, but you know, well, I was about Danny. To s- Danny will go on a whole crusade about no, that if I talk I'm about not, that. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to go against Past Lives. I want to. I want to call it some good stuff. I think Shirley K. Brown getting nominated is really cool. Uh, this is apparently the first time in history a black actor and black supporting actor from the same film were nominated. Male. 
which is a very crazy statistic to me. The only other time I think it happened female was the help, which is Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer. I feel like that's the color purple. Oh, you're right. The color purple would also be it too. I'm sorry. I forgot that that was a movie that we covered on this podcast. But my point is, it's never happened for a man. And this is the year of complaining about Barbie. No, I'm kidding. Um, I also thought May, December getting in in screenplay was a bit of a relief. Uh, And what was the other one I wanted to call out? I thought that the original song nomination for Kills of the Flower Moon was cool. Oh, that was very cool. Yeah. Um, I do think Lily Gladstone should have been in supporting, but that's just me. I think... I think supporting is such a lock for actress that it's like... I don't think it would have. Been, I don't think that. it would have been if she'd put herself there. I think she would have overtaken Divine Joy and Randolph. But I have thoughts about Lily Gladstone and leader supporting that. I will say for our Oscar wrap up on the Off Chance Killers is our uh, Snub Club movie. In which case, I will not cover it. Uh, I will not bring it up until we get to that episode. But in case it isn't, I will give my thoughts on Lily Gladstone's category placement then. Um, because I have a lot of thoughts on that and how it relates to, say, the Michelle Williams thing from last year. Where was that the right category placement? I think it's a lot more complicated than just labeling it as such. But so to quickly, I think it sticks out to me because I think it sticks out to me because I that's the biggest one of the biggest problems with the movie is I feel like her character disappears for half of it. But we'll save that. Well, we'll I have save- one more thing to say. Okay, then okay, about, uh, about the biggest snub, in my opinion, because I'm telling everybody this. Uh, supporting actor, most boring category. We stand Sterling K. Brown, but what the hell? Where is Charles Melton? He deserved it. Reggie, too. <laughs> Why is he not there? Reggie, too. We're big fans of Reggie, too, here. We are. We like Reggie Prime too, but Reggie too is. I'm Reggie I really Prime. was expecting him to be. I'm just. I'm sad. I thought his performance was amazing in May December. I'll be mad at Mark Ruffalo for that. That's who. That's my. I am mad. At, don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. I am. I, I wouldn't be mad at Ryan Gosling, but for some reason, the entire discourse has decided it's his fault that Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig didn't get in. So I will not be mad. He at took Ryan their Gosling spot. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand that at all. So I'm not going to. Anyway, um, to quickly go through the potential snub club options, I'm just going to read through to, in my opinion, the absolute lowest place we could get. So 13 nominations is Oppenheimer. 11 nominations is Poor Things. 10 nominations is Killers of the Flower Moon. 8 nominations is Barbie. 7 nominations is Maestro. With 5 nominations each is American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, and The Zone of Interest. And finally, I would say this is the absolute lowest we can go, is with 3 nominations is Napoleon. I do not see a point of reading the 2 nominations each, because I do not see Napoleon winning anything. So, I think at the bare minimum, we'd be stuck covering Napoleon. but. That's rarely how it goes. So, who would like to put in their prediction first? Because I have mine pretty solidly. I think we probably all do. Probably all put a lot. Of, we probably put more thoughts to this than we did to the movie we're about to cover. But who would like to go I first? Mean, I think those first four, the top four, all have like easy paths. Uh, maybe less so. Poor things. I can. I wouldn't be surprised if poor things goes home empty-handed. But with eleven noms, I think that's unlikely. 
So I'm going to say Maestro, unfortunately, is probably going to be our subclub movie. Sarah, would you like to go or should I go? I, I'll go. I, um, I believe that Poor Things could take home one award for actress. Um, and I do feel like Maestro is going to be our movie. I am shocked that neither of you are putting money on Killers of the Flower Moon. Because I don't know what... Well, okay. I thought one of you were going to pick Kills of the Flower Moon, because I wrote a big defense on why it won't be Kills of the Flower Moon. Uh, but now I don't need to do it. Because mainly, I think the question here to me... Here's the thing. My pick is Poor Things. Because I'm hope-dicting it that we'll get to cover a movie that'd be interesting to cover. But also because Poor Things rubs me like Elvis. It rubs me like a movie that's going to come into second for a lot of technical stuff. Because uh, Oppenheimer is going to be such a powerhouse there. Or, in the case of production design and costumes, Barbie is going to be a powerhouse there. Um, I also think Killers of the Flower Moon, the question is who wins actress. I think ultimately I always come down to someone who hasn't won will win over. So I think Lily Gladstone will beat Emma Stone. I think that... Um, I also think Kills of the Flower Moon has a dark horse potential in production design, which is why I can't pick Kills of the Flower Moon. I don't see what poor things wins if not Emma Stone. I really don't see what maybe screenplay, but even then I feel like Oppenheimer or Barbie pulls it off. I really do. So I feel like for me, I'm going to bet big on poor things because that's the, uh, I think that's, you know, where the last few years, we always bet lower than it actually is, you know? So that's why I was like, very much, I'm going to go swing big with four things. And also because, again, much more interesting episode of the Maestro and Killers of the Flower Moon. We're all redoing the Irishman. I would rather not do another three and a half hour long Scorsese movie. So it's a bit of hope dicting for all of these. So, oh, if, if we're doing the one I would hope to do, it. I don't know. It'd probably be like anatomy of a fall. But, well, I, I would say there's a decent. The, I think the lowest we actually would get is an American fiction anatomy of a fall tie. Because uh, Zone of Interest and Holdovers have two, I'd say, pretty sewn up. Maestro, I think, still has an offside chance to get makeup. Um, but I also could. I personally think that would go to Oppenheimer um, because of the Gary Oldman of it, <laughs> the Gary Oldman's cameo. <laughs> it's very showy, very showy makeup moment. Hey. You're just Caleb is rolling his eyes. He's just upset because he's annoyed that Maestro might not win something. That's what's so funny well, about the show. I was talking about at work. I was talking to work to someone. It's like I hope you don't think I hate poor things by saying this, but I really hope it doesn't win in the Oscars because I'd much rather talk about it on my podcast than a lot of other options this year. I feel like I, I, the whole thing with Maestro and the makeup thing. I, I don't know. This is kind of like an elephant in the room for me that both Maestro and Goldo were nominated. It's kind of like a repeat of last year for me where it was just a bunch of like fat suits that were nominated except this time. I think it's way worse. But nobody's talking about that. Well, I think the Maestro Maestro stuff was discoursed out like a year ago in a way. You know? Um, And Golda is a movie no one really knows exists. Although when I looked at the director... They're gonna know. They're gonna know. (laughs) Yeah, the director, when I looked it up, made me laugh. Um, But what I was going to say with, uh, I think the thing with Maestro, though, that I think is a dangerous thing is that 
And Caleb, I don't know if you know this stat or not. The last like 10 years, usually makeup and a lead acting performance coincide. So I feel like Bradley Cooper has to win if it's going to win makeup just off the stats. So I'm like, and I don't well, think I'm Bradley sure Cooper's that'll winning. happen. I don't think, I think it's good. I think Bradley Cooper's <laughs> at most third place in that category. And even then, I think Jeffrey Wright might be above him too. So fourth. Um, this isn't my personal opinion of his performance. I'm saying like in the votes. So no, I, I understand. What I'm about, just like, uh, the more we talk about doing my show, the less <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's why you got to hope poor things wins nothing like I do. <laughs> uh, speaking of things- snub, speaking of night maestro, uh, Bradley Cooper for best director. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I have a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of things I could go with on that best director thing that I feel like we dodged a bullet on. Um, I am very glad uh, Justine Tree got her nom because I feel like the discourse would be more insufferable. Although probably more, um, what's the word? More valid. More, more valid if she wasn't in. I feel like. But anyway, all right. So it's Maestro for you two, and I'm betting it all on poor things right now. I will say if Emma I Stone, you're right. If Emma Stone wins SAG, I'm gonna probably like go back on this. But right now, I feel like the narrative for Lily Gladstone is just so strong. I just, I really feel like Four Things is gonna have one win, and I think that's gonna be it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's possible. I just remember last year where we we're like, oh, well, Elvis has to win something, and then then it didn't win anything. So I don't know what you're talking about. I got last year's right on a whim. <laughs> But the reason you got your last year's rifle was because Banshees was above Elvis, though, too, is my point. Like, but anyway. Um, all right. Let's go back then to the uh, 52nd Academy Awards in 1979. This is going to be a two-part episode, which is great because that means I don't need to talk about uh, a lot of things, you know. I don't need to. Uh, we're, we're, uh, since we did, you know. Sorry, Blech. word vomit. Um, since we just did that long segment about the Oscars, I'm not gonna do my normal extended countdown for the movies. I'll save that for the next episode. Um, I will still give you a countdown, but I'm not gonna explain to you what they want. And then, of course, next week I'll also talk about the ceremony next time. But. There were two films. There's not much to talk about the ceremony. Well, great. I haven't. I don't know. I haven't looked at it yet because I knew I wasn't gonna get around to it. It's like nothing. Well, there were two films with nine nominations. This was really a year where there were three monumental films that released, and then everything else. And all those films got a lot of nominations. Two films got nine nominations. One of them was Kramer versus Kramer which won five. The other was All That Jazz, which won four Oscars. Then another film had eight nominations, Apocalypse Now. It won two Oscars. There was one film with five nominations called Breaking Away. It won one Oscar. Then there were three films with four nominations. One of them was Norma Rae, which won two. And then another was The China Syndrome, which was one of two films that received no Oscars. Sarah, what was The China Syndrome nominated for? Um, so the China Syndrome was nominated for Best Actor for Jack Lemmon, 
Uh, he lost to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, Lemon was nominated five more times and won two. Best Actress for Jane Fonda. She lost to Sally Field for Norma Rae. Uh, Jane Fonda has been nominated four more times and has won two. Best Original Screenplay for Mike Gray, T.S. Cook, and James Bridges. Um, they lost to Steve Tesh for Breaking Away. Uh, Bridges was also nominated for The Paper Chase in 1973. And Best Art Direction for George Jenkins and Arthur Jeff Parker. They lost to Philip Rosenberg, Tony Walton, Edward Stewart, and Gary J. Brink for All That Jazz. Uh, Jenkins won for All the President's Men in 1976, and Parker was also nominated for The Shootist in 1976. All right, The China Syndrome. Now, before we talk about the film, we have to talk about an award that this won. Well, we don't have to, but I just wanted to start with this, which is this was at Con, beat for the Palme d'Or, and it won Best Actor for Jack Lemon. Who of course returns to our podcast after his brilliant performance in Pepe. That's how I wanted to start this. Is bring up the in Pepe? Yeah, don't you remember? He shows up. He's like, no. "I'm Daphne. I'm Daphne." Like playing, like he plays his oh, role. Oh, in from, the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from some like it hot. He reprises it in color, and it's very weird. <laughs> you could honestly just be like, "X person was in Pepe," and I would probably believe you. <laughs> There's anyway. so many people in that. Um, yeah, this is a movie about uh, Jane Fonda is a uh, a news presenter, and one day when her and her cameraman, played by Michael Douglas, go out to a nuclear power plant, uh, there is a problem um, that the uh, power plant tries to cover up, and Michael Douglas, having gotten some... Uh, some undercover footage um, tries to expose. And so the film kind of follows uh, Douglas and Fonda as they uh, kind of do the news side investigation. And then Jack Lemon, who was the shift manager who starts to uncover a lot of problems with the, uh, with the construction of the power plant. Um, And it's all based around this idea that if a power plant uh, melts down that the radioactive material will just continually melt through the ground until it gets to China, which was a uh, was actually a theory. All right, so the China syndrome. Uh, another award. I want to talk about this before I give my brief thoughts on it. I do see on the list of awards it won. It won best DVD, which is cool because I watched the DVD from the library. I watched the best DVD, one of the best DVDs of the year, guys. This was all the satellite awards gave it best DVD. Um, but anyway, what'd you guys think the best of the best DVD of what year? <laughs> best classic DVD. Let's see what it was not. Oh, <laughs> there were 10 nominations. They gave it to La Dolce Vita this year in 2005. Wow, what a time to Thrilling. be alive! <laughs> this competition was Zorba the Greek, Easy Rider, Fanny Alexander, Murder on the Orient Express, Ragtime, um, the classic masterpiece book and DVD set. The Snake Pick, the Star Wars Trilogy, and Time Bandit's DV Max Special Edition. What would y'all give best DVD? <laughs> like, I ever? Mean, I think the I only one of these I could want. Oh, well, that one's easy. The best was the Monsters, Inc. DVD. I, the Harry Potter DVD was pretty cool. The two, the two disc set, that one was a pretty cool one. Because it was like a whole video game. 
I gotta say, the uh, the the first year they rewarded best DVD at the satellites, pretty good lineup. Uh, the Lon Chaney collection, the James Bond DVD collection, volumes two and three, the Charlie Chaplin collection, the Indiana Jones box set, Scarface, and the winner was Looney Tunes Golden Collection. Ooh. It's a pretty great lineup of nominations and a winner. Ooh, that would be my pick. As a kid, I had all the all the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons on a DVD, and it was like that was the first DVD. Then the second one was all Betty Boop, and then the third one was all Looney Tunes. That's my best DVD. That random collection of public domain cartoons. All right, let's, let's, what do you guys think? What did you guys think of uh, the China Syndrome? It was all right. Yeah, I mean, not the worst movie we've ever watched. Not the best. Um, I found it to be pretty hard to engage with up to a certain point. Um, But I thought the ending, you know, it stuck the landing. Uh, Yeah, I definitely think the ending is the strongest part here. But I like that we got through the 70s and finally got to get to a 70s political thriller. Um, Kind of, you know, the defining genre of the decade. We hadn't watched one yet. And here it is. We get one that is kind of a. I'm. This is the episode where it's like, oh, if we had a historic context, this is like the type of movie that's built for a historic context segment. I'm sure. Oh, Caleb I have has historic some. context, but uh, <laughs> I watched the documentaries on the DVD. But also, you don't need to watch the documentaries on DVD to know that this film's legacy is that opened 12 days before the Three Mile Island incident. It's kind of listed everywhere when this movie comes up, because this movie kind of predicted it. Um, which is interesting because it feels like the type of thing where if you didn't know, it feels like it's just ripping from the headlines of that and making a, you know, fiction about it's, that. Yeah, it's very prescient, um, which I think could both help and hurt it when it came out. Because obviously, like, it it feels timely, it feels important because its concerns are validated through, like, a real-life thing. But then also... If you're worried about nuclear disaster and the like, something just happened. Are you going to want to go see this movie? I, I'm not sure this is the type of movie you get head to the head to the cinema I, and see. I will say, although granted, documentaries like these are always like designed to be like very positive about a classic film. There's a point in the documentary where um, I watched the documentaries on DVD. And they talk about how the movie came out. They got some reviews where it was like, this is ridiculous. Um, good, good thriller, but like such like this would never happen in real life. And then Three Mile Island happened and everyone was like, oh, well, I guess it can. And the, but the anecdote I'm thinking of is James Bridges uh, went with his uh, partner to uh, he would never watch his movies when they were done. And the partner is alive in the documentary. James Bridges died in the 90s. His partner's like, I told him he had to go see this in a theater to see how an audience react to it and it was like a few weeks after three mile island he went and it was just people in the audience were like hissing at like the bad guy like the bad guys like how dare you like you you corporate scum was like what they said and i was like okay yeah this makes sense that this being fresh on everyone's mind would make this like a more intense movie to watch because you know where it's going in a way and it's like everyone in the movie treats you like you're like big ass like you being like oh, no this isn't gonna happen nothing's wrong here you know um, I find it kind I of interesting. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go, sir. Um, 
I feel like if this movie came out now and something like that happened, um, like they would just pull it. I feel like I find like, I don't want to say that this is like an interesting thing, but I do. I am interested in like Columbine's impact on films because so many films were affected by it and you still see it like, you know, the big one um, a couple years ago was The Hunt, which was the the you know greatest game you know thriller horror which was much ado about nothing but you know there's and obviously you know a disaster is a little bit different or you know a shooting is a little bit different um but it is interesting like how and i think you know there's all these wartime movies and stuff as well but i don't think that we at least in my, i feel like we didn't ever really like contextualize it in that way but I think this is like a clear example because it's recent, because the actors are still alive. Like you do get that like sense that it really did, you know, the audience really helped shape the legacy of this film. It's interesting when you dive into it because, and I mean, nuclear science is very complicated. So I'm going to get some stuff wrong here, I'm sure. But from what I, from what I understand, 12 Mile Island kind of proves the China syndrome wrong, like the the theory, not the film, because the theory is that it would either burn, burrow internal or eternally, or it would hit groundwater and then evaporate into the atmosphere. But in Three Mile Island, the uh, radioactive material f- uh, froze before it could melt into the ground. Um, and I know that's, I think Chernobyl, it did get out of the reactor and it did start melting into the ground. So like different for different types, but it is interesting that like the specifics of the movie that the movie is trying to raise were kind of disproven, but it still had an impact just because of the overall danger. Yeah, I think. My my ever thought about this movie that's kind of unrelated to what we're talking about. It's just a general like opening thought is I've never seen Michael Douglas so young. <laughs> I feel like even in Romancing the Stone, which is like five years later, he looks so much older than he does in this movie. But like his voice is like exactly the same always. <laughs> which is I don't, I don't know. I feel like he looks the same. I feel like he's always looked kind of the same. In this, he looks like a sexy young guy. Usually, he looks like a silver fox. I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> he also, uh, he also produced this movie, right? Yes, he produced. Not he had an Oscar, I believe. No, no, he had an Oscar now before this for producing because he produced one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, and he wasn't going to be in it um, at all. But then, I guess whoever they wanted in the role couldn't do it, so he had to step in. Oh, interesting that you saw that for this because in the documentary he outright says he was looking for something he could star in at the time because he was on TV. So, um, because he's like, I really wanted a role that I could start acting in because I was on TV and it's really hard to transition to film. And in the documentary, he's like, this was a project I was interested in because I was interested in nuclear stuff. Uh, And also, Jane Fonda wasn't initially attached. Initially, it was supposed to be Richard Dreyfuss in the role. But um, basically at Columbia, um, Jane Fonda was working on a separate project about a news reporter investigating 
nuclear material, but it wasn't going too far. So the Columbia was like, why don't you two work together and like combine this project into something? Um, and it sounds like it's just really something where two actors really wanted to work together. Well, two actors wanted, were passionate about the material. And then they brought in Jack Lemmon, who was also very passionate about the material. And then James Bridges just got on board because they had a script. And James Bridges was like, all right, I can fix it so Jane Fonda can be in this movie. Anyway, that's basically what the doc said. I'm sorry, sorry to be like, well, actually, to you. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going off of what I, what I know. Well, well it's um, also very possible Michael Douglas is reframing the past because that's what they do in documentaries. Who knows? You know? Yeah, memory is memory is faulty. Um, I, I think the interesting thing here. Because I think if you compare it to like Three Days of the Concord or um, All the President's Men, it does kind of fall flat. Like the tension really isn't. It's a little bit too procedural to be too tense of a thriller. But I think the interesting part comes in when you have the comparisons between the management of the nuclear power plant and the management of the uh, television station, both trying to put profit over like the truth. I really find that with this movie's smartest aspect, um, and granted it's because nowadays I don't think we worry as much about this nuclear um, power plant stuff. Um, but I find the stuff about we are introducing women to newsrooms and we are giving them light material to be basically be, you know, like the attractive person that people tune in to watch. I find that all very interesting because I actually think the fact that it's so critical of it and giving Jane Fonda like this really strong role in like her reporting is like such a fascinating, I don't know. It's just something I wasn't expecting out of this movie. Um, and I think it's also something where like all the 70 political thrillers I've seen are all very like, this is a movie about men and having Jane Fonda have such a strong part in this is intriguing. Um, I think she's good in the movie. I think all three of them are good in the movie. Uh, I think it's it, it, four if we want to count are the man Wilford Brimley. Um, actually, you know what? In general, this is just a good ensemble. I don't think there's anyone really bad in this movie. No, I, I think Jane Fonda is pretty good, and she was obviously coming off of her Oscar win. I think Jack Lemmon is uh, really fun to see him in a slightly different role than I'm used to. Uh, Michael Douglas is a little distracting, um, but that's just because every time I see Mike him I, I think of kirk douglas um because they look exactly the same maybe that's what i was thinking of where i was like well he's always been young but i was just thinking of young <laughs> kirk douglas see i've seen way more michael douglas and i've seen kirk um and to me they have i do think they have different voices and that's really the, the, for me michael douglas's voice is so distinct that's like whoa well there it is there's michael douglas um i do think uh I also just think in general, this is our first film we've seen that's talked about television, which makes that entire side of the story a little more interesting to me, too. Um, obviously, Network came out a couple of years before this. But beyond that, I don't think there's really been these movies tackling the idea of what is TV, you know? And what is TV's place in our modern society? Yeah, and the all the all the process stuff with the TV is fun like i like you have to get to the deadline and this is we have to get the film to this and we have to take out like 
what the film is being processed because this is a hot story and we have to worry about what's come down the wire. All that stuff is, I think, makes for fun and um, makes fun sequences. Not, not to jump to the end, also makes for a brilliant final shot. I feel like, <laughs> um, but um, do you guys have anything you want to talk about this movie? Because I feel like I just keep like, you know, like do you guys have a direction you want to go here? I can keep talking. I enjoyed this movie a lot. Not a lot. I think this. I think I liked it more than I reviewed. Because you guys were like, "It's okay." I was like, "No, I thought this was good." You know, I didn't think it was great. I thought it was good. I think the last forty know. minutes does a really great job making it together. It just doesn't feel very like fleshed out to me. It feels very like surface level to me in a way. Um, especially Jane Fonda's character. I just like I get what you're saying. There is that gen like there is a little bit of gender dynamics, which is like okay. Um. I just, I don't know. It's And I think this is kind of a symptom of that era as well. Um, it's just, well, I say that, but that work exists. But it just, it feels like, I don't know. The characters were kind of one-dimensional to me a little bit. I, bet, I think that's kind of, though, what you sign up for usually in these thrillers. I mean, the main one I always point to of the ones I've seen is, of course, All the President's Men. And in that, it's very purposely like these characters do not have an internal life really you know yeah i just feel like all the president's men like the mystery of it is so thrilling that that works but i wasn't really engrossed in this until like the very end sure i actually would agree with that there was definitely points in the middle where i was just kind of like all right like i'm enjoying jack lemon and jane fonda's performances here but can we tighten this up a bit? I think right. the last, I think once their camera guy gets like rammed off the side of the road, the rest of the movie's like on fire. But right. until yeah, then, feel, it's kind of like very, very like procedural to the point of, come on, we don't need to see everything. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't feel like the stakes really come through soon enough. Um, I wish there was. I don't know, maybe a little bit more pressure on Jane Fonda's character, like professional stakes. Um, because obviously like she, she's established at the, at the station and Michael Douglas is a freelancer. And so he gets fired and she doesn't. And the station management kind of courts her so that she doesn't make a big deal out of it. Um, but I don't know. I feel like, I feel like all that stuff while interesting definitely uh definitely makes it feel a little odd when all of a sudden things go from like that to life and death i definitely think that um jack um jack lemon's character how i think lemon does a very good job of selling a very sudden character change um and that's more me crediting him than knocking the script, but I do think it's something where the script, I feel like it was way too slow on a lot of things and then suddenly it's like within a scene Jack Lemon has changed his stance. Um, and granted, it's because he sees, he sees evidence that immediately changes his mind, but I don't know. I feel like it's something where it's a weird thing that this movie takes so long on everything else that this is something that is left to be very internalized. I don't know. Maybe it's not really an issue, but to me it was just something where it was like, you know, at the end when he's like, 
going, he's going his full network moment. It's kind of like, huh, where did this really come from? Personally. Um, but again, I don't think any of that is in Lemon's performance. I think it's all in the script. Yeah, I feel like even at the beginning, when they go through the process of like the scram um, and the shutdown and everything, like it's such a long scene. And I get why it's long because it's kind of like this real time moment. But it, even then, it doesn't feel like the stakes are very high. Um, and so when it comes back around, it doesn't really feel like. There's like, I mean, it feels more, it feels like there's more pressure in the, you know, in the end, but it, I don't know. I, I wish that the stakes felt higher at the beginning. And then I feel like we would have a better understanding of like his character change and like what's going on at the end. Um, but it just, because it felt so hard to engage with, um, it just didn't feel very thrilling at the beginning. But also, can we talk about the scene of this movie that had me laughing hysterically, but not in a derogatory way, even though it might sound like it. And that is the Jack Lemon car chase that like just is like it's the thing is it's like it's kinda like, does this movie really need a car chase? But then it's like, well, this is actually really cool. <laughs> like I thought the stunts were really great in this. I don't know if the movie needed any of it. Or like I was thinking about um, of course. Going way back to Marilyn, we live when they rammed the guy off the side of the road in the car. I was like, yeah, throw that car off that cliff. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> but then also just like the whole car chase. Fi- the moment I really like, like had him like, oh, ho, ho, like was when like he like loses the guy. But then you just see in the back of the frame, the car just come to his side. And I was like, ah, this is great. This is really well directed. Cool stunts. Don't know how much it really fits in the tone of the rest of this movie, but I'm excited right now, so I can't be too mad about it. Well, I also feel, well, I get I get what you're saying, but I also feel like we already had like a a car chase that seemed like much more important and much more like grounded in realism um with the cameraman getting run off the road. So it, I don't know, it was kind of yeah, comical. Because Jack Lemmon <laughs> just does like the most insane like driving in this, where it's like, whoa, where'd this even come from? But also, it again, feels it's like, like, I don't know. It feels like even like when he takes the gun at the end, it feels so casual and calm. Um, like when he's like pointing it at people and stuff. And I just feel like they put multiple car chases in just because it felt like the most like grounded way to make a thriller. <laughs> But the car chases, car chases feel both completely from a different film, but yet also very entertaining. So <laughs> I do think there are a couple good moments between characters. I think when Jane Fonda meets uh, Jack Lemmon's character in the bar and they have their conversation, I think that does a really good job of establishing this character relationship. Um, and I think, I think. Wilfred Brindley uh, also has an interesting scene where he talks about um, he talks about the investigation and how that's a little bit it it goes a little bit differently for him because he doesn't have the credentials of everyone else, which kind of justifies where he goes at the end of the movie too. I think though, um, I think well, there's some other stuff I wanted to talk about before we talk about the ending. I think the sound design in this is really cool. 
I think the documentary pointed it out to me in a way I didn't really recognize, which is that this film apparently, like most films, had a much more intense score. And then they tested it and they're like, this movie doesn't work at all with the score because it becomes very stupid and over the top. Whereas if it's just beeps and like scratches, it's very tense. Um, I also think the film has a very good production design. I think technically, of course, the film is it's one of those things where, like this film is great technically, you know? Um, I don't know. Like it's, 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 to me, this is what I would call the well-made film, right? Like there's nothing really wrong here other than it's a little slow some of the time, but that's just to be expected from a film from like the seventies, like this dealing with a big issue topic that we don't really care about anymore. Yeah, I guess so. But we've already mentioned Network and All the President's Men. Network is and not those are this both type of... amazing films. Network is not. I would say Network is not in this genre, though. Network is a satire set in this world. It is a not the. I would say All the President's Men is also a movie that at points I get bored with. Um, but that's part of the point of All the President's Men. It's like how long it takes to break the story. Um, whereas here, that doesn't feel like that's the point. This whole movie takes place in the span of a week. I think the other connection would maybe be the conversation and just how it's kind of like the polar opposite. I think it's kind of the polar opposite where the conversation's obviously about like listening and stuff and like recording on tape. And this is the key part is that they have a video without sound. And I almost wonder if they like it, it's something that they couldn't do because part of the drama is that they don't know what's going on in the room. But if they keep going back to this video, it's almost the lack of sound is kind of more deadening than anything else and kind of takes away some possibility of tension in those scenes. I think also, I think, well, we can talk about the end. I think the ending of this movie is just so good. Like, it's easily the best part. I think the shock of Jack Lemmon being shot is really powerful. Uh, I think Jack Lemmon's meltdown itself doesn't fully work for me. I think it's more in the writing than in his performance. I think he's doing his best to sell it. Um, I think he's doing actually a really good job selling it. Um, but that also doesn't really matter because still, you still feel sad when he gets shocked. You're like, whoa, I wasn't actually expecting that to happen. At least for me, I wasn't expecting it to happen. And they're like, how are you going to end this movie? And I find the ending they get to incredibly satisfying. One for like resolving Jane Fonda's arc, but also for like Wilford Brimley's like last scene is like very like emotionally powerful to me. Uh, and of course, as I said, the final shot I think is kind of chilling. That's Jane Fonda's finally breaking down over it in the camera, the, the TV cutting to commercial. Uh, just moving on from this like intense tragedy. I don't know. I thought it was a really great ending. Very, emo- I felt emotional at the ending, which I was not expecting from this film that I was otherwise not engaged with for a lot of it. I did too, and I was surprised by that as well. But I actually did find myself tearing up a little bit. I think just I think it's part of the like, part of it is just Wilfred Brimley being like he's my friend, and I was just like that's such a beautiful way to put it. Is that like he's my friend, and I don't believe he would have this meltdown he had doesn't make any sense unless he had a good reason to and i find that you know it's also something where it's like the villains in this are so reprehensible see like jane fonda pull it off and find justice when it looks like there's absolutely no way to do it it's just you know it's 
makes you feel good and also just again Brimley's acting and Fonda's acting are phenomenal in this last scene I, I think what's interesting about the ending um, and Lemons which too. I do uh, yeah yeah I, I do think the ending is probably the strongest part of the movie and I think it's because it balances Jim Fonda is able to push through and kind of combat the um, whitewashing that the power or the nuclear uh, power plant is trying to do by challenging their depiction of Jack Lemon's character, but you still get the or at least I still got the feeling that because this world is so realistic in how it handled everything else, there's a good chance nothing will actually come of this. Um, that the power plant is powerful enough that they'll be able to um, they'll be able to weasel their way out of any actual repercussions. And I think that works because it, it fulfills that emotional arc with our characters, but it doesn't like it doesn't wrap things up in a nice bow. I I feel like that's a nice cynical way to look at it, but I also think I think the fact that there's going to be an investigation, whereas earlier it was like this was a crazy guy who just took over, did nothing to look at here is satisfying enough for me because obviously there needs to be an investigation there that um Wil- Wilford Burnley will testify for but I believe he also saw some things wrong he just was like oh this can't be there right yeah so. it's satisfying without being like utopian yes exactly there's a reason to be optimistic at this ending even if you want to be cynical you can be you know I I feel like this is going to make me sound ignorant, but I was kind of struck like watching this, like how how critical they were towards like nuclear power plants and like all of that. And obviously, like obviously the incident that happened afterwards, um, but then like the response from these nuclear companies, um, like being like, absolutely, this was, you know, this was damaging to us and all this stuff. And it's like, I mean, I guess we have things like that now, kind of, but I feel like they're so fictionalized. Like, there'll be some fictional company that is doing evil things, and I feel like... I don't know. This just felt very real to me, and very critical of something real. I think we get some stuff like that. I think about the film, very underrelated film that I always recommend to people, because it kind of was one of those movies that was released during Oscar season was completely ignored for some reason. The film Dark Waters, um, which does take the task, these chemical companies and um, manufacturing companies, um, or not the same thing because they're not companies, but a movie like Spotlight. Uh, I think you still get stuff that is something where it's like, we must continue to investigate this. The question is, is how effective it is now. Sometimes it's something where it's like the big short where it's like, wow, none of these people got put in jail and there's no real like exposing of it. But I think of a movie like Dark Waters, which even though it didn't get much of a push, it's like I really I what left Dark Waters knowing stuff that I didn't know before, you know? Yeah, I think I think there are two things that affect it in the modern day. One is that we are so um inundated with like 
news and breaking headlines and like scandal and all this stuff that it's easy to pull our attention away. Like we'll find out one. It's kind of like the last week tonight problem, right? It's like John Oliver will talk about one horrific thing that you want to take action on. And then he'll have a show out next week that has, does the exact same thing about something else. And you can't maintain focus enough. I think the other problem is of course that corporations now have rights that they didn't have back then and that gives them a lot more power. Corporations are now legally people according to our wonderful Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell. So like they they obviously have a lot more ways of dodging uh dodging accountability. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about this movie? I know we went kind of short on it, but I also think as I said, this is to me like what I would call the well-made conspiracy thriller movie. There's not much to it beyond that. It is an enjoyable watch. It has a really great ending. But I don't think any of us are really experts on nuclear energy and stuff like that, too. So anything there is like hard for us to get into regardless. Um, but I think I do want to shout out, though, again, but well, maybe I'll give him the award. Maybe not. I'm actually debating between a few in my head, but I do think the direction here is very good. I believe this is the only James Bridges film we'll ever cover. Um, and, you know, early, like, gay icon. So we should uh, celebrate him. Very good move. Very good performance. Very good direction. Sorry, not performance. He died really young, too. Very sad. He died at age 57. Anyway. Was this. Ooh. What? Okay, he did Urban Cowboy after that. I was wondering if this is like the only film he did that had any kind of impact. But uh, the Paper Chase got a nomination. He's been, that was his other nomination was adapted screenplay for the Paper Chase. So, but yeah, I just thought it, I think this is his most famous film, right? So. I think so. I mean, I'm looking through these and I nothing's really standing out. That doesn't mean they're bad films. Just Oh wait, he did Colossus the Forbidden Project. I I heard about that because of a another podcast I listened to recently. Sarah. Mm, yes. What was the China Syndrome nominated for? All right. Well, the China Syndrome, not to be confused with the series finale of King of Queens. Uh, was nominated for um, Best Actor for Jack Lemmon, Best Actress for Jane Fonda, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Art Direction. I'm sorry, why on earth is King of Queens' (laughs) finale called The China Syndrome? Well, you're going to have to watch it to find out, I guess. (laughs) I think there's a solid argument for all four of these. I will give it to Jacqueline, who, in my opinion, multiple times in this movie, I'm just seeing his eyes move over, like glance at something really quickly and come back. I find it an incredibly lived in performance. I also just really like Jack Lemon. So I'd like to give an award to Jack Lemon. And also, it's just, it, it's good. He's very, he's giving a lot of good subtle work here. And the case where he does explode, it, I don't, I, I buy it even if I don't buy the script. If that makes sense. I think he's doing a very good job. I'm going to give it uh, art direction. I um, I think it's a nice carryover from uh, All the President's Men, where everything feels very 
usable and touchable and tangible. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very lived in set, which is good. I will also give it to Jack Lemon. I think especially during that initial meltdown, he does a lot of great subtle acting. Yeah. All right, add an arm. Um, I am tempted to give Wilford Brindley supporting actor, but I think I'm going to end up going with editing on this one. I think especially with uh, the ending being the strongest part of the film, um, editing is the right choice here. Yeah, I agree. I'm giving it editing. Um, I think how it they blend the TV sequences with um, like what's going on with the film is very cool. Um, it feels very behind the scenes in a way. Um, and there's some cool things that they do at the end with pacing as well. Uh, I initially was going to give it editing, but then discussing it with you, you both, I realized that I am going to pull the adage that not that if a film feels longer than it is, that I don't feel comfortable giving it film editing personally, even if the ending is well edited. I think parts of this film really are kind of rough and it's not just the material i think it's part of it is like flow of the film itself um although i do think the ending is really great so it's kind of like well that kind of makes up for it but in that case i would like to give it the best sound design or sound i think the sound this film is really well used the beeps and the bloops but also just like the car chase sounds really cool i think there's a lot of this film that just sounds good um so i will give it best sound um all right that is the China Syndrome. A pretty good movie. All right. You guys like to know what we are doing next time? Sure. Next time on The Snub Club, we are going to continue being in 1979 with a film with four nominations and no wins. Have a drum roll, please. It is Mark Rydell's The Rose. This is a film a musical film that's loosely based on the life of Janis Joplin, starring Bette Midler. Uh, and I noticed it also has uh, Harry Dean Stanton in the cast, which is pretty cool. I like that man. But, I saw it had somebody be- named David Keith, and I got ex- I read it wrong. I was like, oh, this movie has Keith David in it? <laughs> oh, I wish. But no. So we're going to talk about The Rose next time. Four nominations, Alrighty. no wins, and that will finish... When we do it, we'll be done with the 70s. We'll be very excited. So. All right. I'm right Danny on. Vincent. Oh, sorry. Were you going to say something about the rose? I don't mean to cut you off. No, I said right on. Cool. Right on, Rydell. Be directed. Anyway, I'm Danny Vincent. You follow me on Letterboxd at Blankman's. Uh, going to see if I can make it through as many Oscar noms as I can right now, as I normally do. Um, but who knows if I'll get around to Nyad. Still don't think that movie's real. but. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey. In my opinion, we're coming off of a really great run. And currently, I feel very good about every, every guest episode we've had so far. I think we've been really on fire recently. So you should definitely check it out. Um, yeah, I'm incredibly proud of what we're doing over there. Um, not that I'm not proud of what we're doing here, too. But yeah, it's, um, it's a good time. I am Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my other podcasts, Star Wars Therapy and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. 
Thanks, Thank Joe. Thank you, Joe. Joe, if you could be a nuke, would you? I'm going to answer for him and say no, because why would you? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, um, you can find me on Letterboxd, uh, SGK, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y, and Instagram, SGK29. Uh, you can find us, the Snub Club, on uh, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, uh, Facebook, Snub Club Podcast, <laughs> and uh, X Snub Club Pod. All right. Well, you can join us next time for The Rose. Bye. Goodbye. See you.